Amen. That is our prayer. We need him. Oh, how we need him. Well, good morning. It would be um, a colossal understatement to say that it is good to be here with you this morning. This has been really um, a day that both my wife Michelle and I have been thinking and and praying about uh, for quite some time now. And it's just good to, to finally be here. Like Scott said, this is the last step in the process. And so our hope and our, our prayer would be that we'd be able to join you shortly. Um, I thought a lot about what to talk with you about this morning. I thought about vision and direction. I thought about uh, where we could go in the future, large dreams. And all of those things are really important. And, and we would for sure talk about those things um, but I think that there is something that is more foundational than that. There's something that has to come before we even have that conversation. I, I firmly believe that who we become as a church, as individuals, always flows out of who we actually are at our core, at our foundation. And so that's really what I want to talk with you about today. What is our foundation? So I want to start with um, a little bit of a word association game, okay? And so the idea is that when I say a word or a phrase, um, you don't necessarily have to say anything, but um, think about what is it that pops into your head when I, when I say these words or phrases. So um, we'll start out a little bit controversial here. Uh, what happens, what pops in your head when I say the phrase Trump supporter? Yeah. <laughs> I thought that would happen. Uh, what about Hillary supporter? <laughs> what happens if I say the word vegan? <laughs> you guys all think of Steve again, right? How about the phrase NASCAR fan? <laughs> all right, what about this? What about Star Wars? Okay, you think of the old stuff or the new stuff? Okay, all right. Sorry, Bredos. <laughs> all right, so we've kind of got the, the pump primed here, but the, the idea is that um, we all associate images and, and pictures to these words or these phrases. So let's talk about maybe more of what we want to discuss this morning. What if I were to say to you, or what would come to your mind when I say the word Christian? All right. So the reality is, is that if we were to go out from these doors and we were to walk into the city and ask 10 different people, we might get nine different answers. Like if we were to go out into the city of La Habra and maybe ask people this question, are you a Christian? I would imagine that we would get a plethora of answers. Certainly you'd get some people saying yes. Some people would just say No. Other people would say, well, what do you mean by that? Some people would say yes, but, and add a qualifier, and some people would say no, but I'm a really good person or something. Some people would say yes, but I'm not like those group, that group of people over there. And and still others would say yes, and I can point to a time when I gave my life to Jesus. Others might say, well, I, I think I've always been a Christian. 
And we would, get, we would get a plethora of different answers if we were to ask that question. Here's the interesting thing, and this is something that probably a lot of you know already, an interesting fact. The first followers of Jesus didn't call themselves Christians. And they didn't call themselves Christians. The term was actually a derogatory term that other people called them, right? Christians is like saying little Christs. Look at those little Christs over there. In, in Acts eleven twenty six, it says, And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And so it wasn't something that they called themselves. It was something that they, they were called. So if the first Christians didn't refer to themselves as Christians, what did they refer to themselves as? We see it in that verse. It says disciples. They were called disciples. Consider, so consider this. Um, the word Christian is only used three times in the entire Bible. The word disciple is used 281 times in the New Testament. And so you might be thinking like, okay, well, so what? What I want to suggest is that in changing the primary word that we use to describe ourselves, perhaps we've lost the clarity of the word disciple and what it conveyed about what it actually means to follow Jesus. Now, in case you're wondering... Um, and maybe tensing up a little bit, like, where is this going? Great, the new guy comes in, and, you know, at the end of the message, he says, we will no longer call ourselves Christians, and from this point forward, you will be called disciple. And you're probably thinking, like, that's a little weird. I don't think I'm going to do that. Um, that is not where we're headed. But what I want to show you is that I, I think our, word, our use of the word Christian today can obscure the reality of, of what Jesus has really called you and I to do and to be. Disciple is, is much clearer, uh, terrifyingly clear, in fact, about what, it actu- what you actually become when you give your life to Jesus Christ. And so I want to take the morning to look at what a disciple actually is. And so in Matthew chapter 4, which is where we'll be today, you can turn there. In Matthew chapter 4, we have the calling of Jesus' first disciples. And in this passage, you get a glimpse of what a disciple was and, and how Christians saw themselves. So we'll be Matthew chapter 4, and we'll start in verse 18 here. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, it says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So I'll be a little bit transparent with you from the beginning here. Uh, When I first heard this story, or when it was first taught to me as a kid, um, I really didn't understand why in the world these guys would just get up and follow him. So when I learned this story, probably on a flannel graph, like I learned most of my stories in Sunday school, or in those awesome uh, kind of B-rate movies that we watched as young Christian kids back then, um, this image of these these men kind of going about their daily business as fishermen, um, and then all of a sudden, this man that they had never seen before walks up to them in this white bathrobe with a blue Miss America sash around, with, somehow had blonde hair flowing in the breeze, and just kind of shoots a look at them, follow me. And I, 
I don't know if it's like a tractor beam coming out of his eyes or what. Yes, master, we will follow. But, but it never made sense to me, right? It, it never made sense. Why would they drop everything and follow this man? But when, when you understand a little bit of the background, a little bit of the history, it actually makes a whole lot more sense. I'll take a couple minutes just to maybe describe that for us and fill that in because I, I think it'll help us understand what's going on here. So all Hebrew boys in those days went to what they called Torah school. Torah was simply the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um, And you started at age five. And and the way that Torah school would start is that you you began with this ceremony. They would bring all these five-year-old boys in, and they would take a drop of honey And they would drop it on their tongues. And many of these boys were from rural, very poor context. And and it was possible that some of them had never even tasted honey in their life before. And so they have this sensation of sweetness kind of rushing over their body. And while they're doing this, they're reading to them the first few chapters in the book of Genesis. And so the picture that they wanted to lock into their minds and their hearts was that the word of God would be sweet, that they would crave it, that they would desire it all of their lives. And so for the next five years, they would, um, they would begin by, by memorizing large sections of the Torah from five to ten years old. Then at ten years old, they had um, kind of the first weeding out process. So at 10 years old, they took the very best of those students, maybe the top 20% or so. The, the, the 80% that remained, they went home to their families and began working in the family business. But that 20% stayed for an additional seven years. And during that time, they learned what um, we would call the rest of the Old Testament, Joshua through Malachi, the Italian prophet. And um, then they would learn that again for the next seven years. When they got to age 17... Um, then they had the, the final cut. They would take the best of the best of the best. The rest would go home. And that small group would then, if they wanted to continue their theological training, would identify a rabbi, a rabbi that they respected, whose teaching they wanted to emulate. And w- they would go and they would sit at the feet of the ra- foot of the rabbi and they would apply to become that rabbi's Talmud. Talmud means disciple in, in Hebrew. And when they found the rabbi, they would again sit at the rabbi's feet, and that was their request to learn from that rabbi. And so the rabbi would examine them with rigorous questioning and these tests that they would put them through to see if they were worthy of being their disciple. uh, Rabbis were able to be extremely selective because being an expert in, in, uh, being an expert in, in, uh, or excuse me, being a religious ruler, an expert religious ruler, was um, like the greatest job that you could hope for as as a young Hebrew boy. That's what they dreamed of. They didn't think of being, you know, athletes or rock stars. They didn't have those. They wanted to be religious leaders, and they dreamed of that. And so rabbis could afford to choose the very best of the best, the brightest, the smartest, the, the sharpest students possible to be their Talmudim. That's plural for disciples. And so another reason then that rabbis were so picky about this is that when they chose a disciple, they're not just choosing somebody that they believed had the capacity to just know what they knew. They wanted someone who they thought had the capacity to be like them in every way. And so for several years, these young disciples, they would follow their rabbis around, imitating everything about them. 
They would learn their mannerisms. They would learn how they answered certain questions and how they responded in certain situations. In fact, supposedly the highest compliment that you could, you could pay a young Talmud was to say the dust of your rabbi is all over you. And that wasn't a way to just say, you know, dude, you need a shower. That was them saying, you follow your rabbi so closely, you are so linked to your rabbi that whatever they step in sprays up all over you. That's, that, that is how closely you follow the teachings of your rabbi. One more thing. In Jesus' day, there, were, there was a really rare form of rabbi who possessed a characteristic that Jewish people called shmicha. You want to say it? It's kind of fun. Shmicha. Shmicha means authority. Okay, And there, there was a very small group of rabbis who possessed this kind of authority. And if you, if you know Jewish history, they had names that you would recognize, like Hillel and Gamaliel. These guys were masters, masters at the Torah. They knew it front and back. They were kind of these mystical men who seemed to possess this deep, deep authority. They were thought to be so close to God, in fact, that they were allowed to offer new, unheard-of interpretations of the Old Testament text. Um, Jews generally were kind of frowned on new things, but these guys were able to say, you've heard it said this way, but let me tell you what it actually means. Um, And so a couple of things that were required in order to be this kind of rabbi with this authority, you had to, it had to be documented that you had performed miracles. Uh, Credible witnesses had seen you perform miracles. And then finally, in order to be kind of folded into this club, two other rabbis that possessed this level of authority had to confer that upon you. So needless to say, very, very small, very elite group of people. So now, back to Matthew chapter 4. Here comes Jesus, who knows the Torah so well that we see him at age 12 correcting the religious leaders in the temple. He frequently said things like, when he was teaching, like, you have heard it said, but I tell you, so there's his new interpretation, throughout the New Testament, we see that his hearers are constantly amazed at the authority by which he's teaching. A few chapters after a passage in, in Matthew 7, it says, they were amazed because he taught them as one with authority, not as the scribes. In other words, not as the scribes who simply repeated what their rabbis told them. And then we see throughout Jesus' ministry, people say things like, where did you get your authority? Who conferred this upon you is what they're saying. We need to know. Right after our passage in verse 23, it says that Jesus left and he went into all the countryside preaching the gospel and healing every disease, performing these miracles. And then the best part is that right before this account in Matthew 4, Jesus goes out into the wilderness with where John the Baptist, the camel skin wearing locust and honey eating prophet preaching in the wilderness who was just dripping with shmiha. Um, he, he tells everybody that Jesus is, is so much greater than him that he is not even worthy to carry Jesus' sandals. And then the, the heavens open and the voice of God speaks down saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And at this point, people who were paying attention would have had you know, the dash light, the shmiha dash light going, shmiha, shmiha, shmiha. And, and people would have not mistaken what was going on here. These were his, his, the two affirmations and it was obvious that this, that this Jesus had incredible authority. So now, get this, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus, this rabbi who is oozing with this authority, chooses Peter, Andrew, 
James, and John, who were fishermen. The fact that they were fishermen shows you what about them? They didn't make the cut. They didn't make either of the first two cuts. They, they were not the best of the best. And we have to let that sink in, I believe. When Jesus assembled his force by his choice to build his movement to change the world, he chose the B team. He moved right over the A, all of the A players, all of the best of the best, and he went right to the B team. And so the point is, of course they wanted to follow him. Of course they wanted to follow this rabbi with all of this authority, choosing them, guys without much potential uh, or personal power. He chose them to follow him, to become like him, to know God like he knew God, and to do what he did and be filled with his power. And so I think there are a number of things that we can learn about what it actually means to be Jesus' disciple. The first one is this. He doesn't choose the best. He chooses the willing. He doesn't choose the best. He chooses the willing. And one, one pastor I read this week, he says it like this, and I, I love this. He said, God skipped all the wise of the day. The great scholars were in Egypt. The great library was in Alexandria. The great philosophers were in Athens. The powerful were in Rome. He passed over Herodotus, the historian, and Socrates, the great thinker, and Julius Caesar, the great ruler. He chose men so ordinary, it was comical. No rabbis, no teachers, no religious experts, not even a synagogue ruler. Half were fishermen, one was essentially an IRS agent, and one was a former terrorist. He chose the B team because his work in the world wouldn't come through their abilities for him. His work in the world would come through his abilities through them. And see, people with a lot of talent and skills would ultimately get in the way because they would never really learn to lean into Jesus and the source who is the source of their power. You see, Jesus knew that his power in the weakest of human vessels was infinitely more powerful than the greatest power apart from him. And I love how Jesus reinforces this with his disciples a few chapters later. He's speaking again about John the Baptist. And he says, of all those born of women, so that would be everyone, of all those born of women, there has not risen any greater than John the Baptist. Now that's a stunning statement. Of all who have ever been born, Jesus says, John the Baptist is the highest. And then he says, but I assure you that he who is the least in my kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. That is incredible. That's an incredible statement. He's saying that his spirit in the mouth of the person who is the least in his kingdom, and I I don't know who that person is, but apparently there is that person, the person who is the least in his kingdom has more potential for power in ministry than John the Baptist. Why? Because we have something that John never had, the spirit of God inside of us. And Jesus said that from that point on, it would no longer going to be about our abilities for Jesus, but your faithfulness to being available to Jesus. How many uh, high school students are going to Unleashed this this next week? That is awesome. Yes. I just want to say I am incredibly proud of you guys. That is, that's tough. There's probably a lot of us adults in here who would be terrified to go out on the beach and and to share the gospel uh, with strangers, and you guys are being faithful. One of the things that we say to our high school students Every year at Unleashed, we ask the question, what does it look like 
to, to be faithful in evangelism? What does effective evangelism look like? Because oftentimes uh, we get caught up in, in, in thinking that we don't have the right answers, we don't possess the right skills, we don't have all the abilities needed in order to, to do what we're called to do, to share the gospel. And what we say time and time again to our high schoolers is that, is that effective evangelism looks like being faithful to the conversation that God has for you. So effective evangelism can look like giving someone on the beach a really good conversation with a Christian where you leave them with questions to ponder about eternity and faith in Jesus. It can also look like leading someone all the way through a gospel presentation and seeing them give their life to Jesus Christ. But that's God's deal. God's the one that draws people to himself. All we are called to do is to be faithful and to allow God's power to work through us. Perhaps there's some of us in this room who have, have maybe felt sidelined or hindered uh, in, in our, our mission, in our ministry, because we feel like, I don't have what it takes. I'm not winsome enough. I don't know the answers. I, I think they're going to reject me. And it's kept us from walking across the street and, and forming a relationship with a neighbor who we know believes something different than we do or has kept us from engaging with someone at work that we know we need to build a friendship with for the glory of God. The truth of the matter is, and we need to remember that Jesus doesn't choose us because we are already capable. He doesn't choose you because he knew that you're already a great mom or a great dad or a great witness or a great coach or a great teacher or great in business or even great in ministry in La Habra. He chose you because he knew that you could be a willing vessel that he could work through. That the Holy Spirit speaking through the mouth of one believer is more powerful than an army of the most eloquent orators in the entire world. You understand that when you face the things that God has called you to face, he didn't choose you because you were already capable. He makes you capable by choosing you. Your capability doesn't depend on your own abilities. It comes from his power in you. So the question is not how able are you. The question is how available are you? Have you surrendered yourself to him to say, God, I want to stop making excuses and I want to quit looking into my family and into my marriage and into my ministry and into my workplace and and stop asking what can Andrew do? But start asking what can God do through me? If I'm faithful to him. Number two, God chose us, not we him. God chose us. We didn't choose him. Like I explained, the normal way that all of this went down was that if you were the best of the best of the best in your class, then you would sit in front of a rabbi and you would answer his questions. And if he liked what he heard, he would choose you. And what we've learned is that this, this became a great source of comfort for these young disciples. When things were going really hard, when there was challenges that they were experiencing, they could always look back and go, yeah, but that rabbi who I respect deeply, he saw something in me. He values me. How many of you have had an experience like that where someone who you respect deeply has said, said something to you in your life that has, that has really radically shifted. The, the, it is not an, an understatement to say that a word spoken in that regard can radically shift a life, can change the trajectory of a life. To, to know that someone you respect believes in you and has called you. But Jesus, he started this process way before that. Back even further, his disciples, 
they had no hope of, of being called, of being, of being called to be in the life that they were. But Jesus called them before they even asked. They weren't even seeking him. They weren't even looking for him. Imagine that kind of confidence. One of the things that we notice as we read through the New Testament is that Jesus and the apostles are constantly bringing up this concept that God chose us as a means of confidence and encouragement for us. In the midst of a world where you face all sorts of opposition, you can be confident that if God chose you, God is going to see it through. And in John 15, 16, Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. When Jesus says, you didn't choose me, I chose you, his main point is to say that I, I chose you and I have plans for you and what I have planned and purposed for you, I'm going to pursue and I'm not going to let it drop. And so when you lack confidence in yourself, you should put your confidence in my purposes in you because even if you falter and fail, and we will, his plan will never fail. I think this is the territory where where oftentimes our confidence or our faith fails. Sometimes we talk about losing our our faith or our confidence in, in Jesus, but it's really not our confidence in Jesus or our faith in Jesus that, that we've lost. What we've lost is our confidence that Jesus will do in us what he promised to do. You see the difference there? A, a good example of this would be the story where the disciples are they're out on a boat and the storm is raging and Jesus begins to walk out uh, to them on the water. And, you know, and Peter, of course it's Peter, looks out and um, is like, uh, Jesus, is that you? If it's you, tell me to come out and, and meet you on the water. And Jesus, it is I, come out. And, um, and Peter steps over the boat and he begins to walk on water, which would have been incredible. And then we know the story that Peter looks around, he begins to be scared and terrified and he begins to sink. And so we'll say, oh, look, he lost his faith in Jesus. But the truth is that he didn't lose his faith in Jesus, right? He has plenty of faith in Jesus. Jesus is doing just fine standing on the water right next to him. What he lost was his confidence that Jesus would do in him what he promised to do, what he told him he would do. When our faith and our confidence falters, it is usually not in the character of Jesus that we begin to doubt. It's It's in the promise of Jesus doing through us what he promised to do. I'm fully convinced that if Jesus were married to my wife, Michelle, he would be an amazing husband. Right? He, would be, he would be an incredible husband. I'm fully convinced of that. What I am not fully convinced of all the time is that God can work through me to be the type of husband that he has called me to be. We are fully convinced, we are so confident that if Jesus were raising our children, he would get them to eat their vegetables all the time. Right? He would be doing an incredible job, but that's not what he promised. He promised that he would do it through us. See, we're fully confident that if Jesus were the one that was leading this church, which he is, by the way, but if he were here physically leading this church, that we would be doing a great job of reaching the city of La Habra. But that's not what he promised. He promised that he would do it through us. When life smacks you down, when you feel like a failure, when you are up against insurmountable obstacles, we need to remember that he who began a good work in us, Philippians 1.6, will continue it and he will never let it go and he will finish it until it finishes on the day of Jesus Christ. 
When Jesus Christ chose you, he had a plan, a plan for your relationships, a plan for your family, a plan to use you to bring forth fruit, and not a bit of it depended upon the ability that you brought to the table. It all depended upon your ability to allow him to work through you. And we could put our confidence in that. Third thing, our primary call is to be with him. Our primary call is to be with him. Notice exactly what Jesus says. He says, follow me. He didn't tell them that where they were going. He didn't tell them uh, what assignment he had for them because his primary call on their life was not to go do something. His primary call on their life was to be like him, to be with him, and to become like him, we have to know him. And to know him, we need to spend time with him. And to spend time with him means that we soak in every single word that has come out of his mouth. Do you want the dust of your rabbi to be all over you? then you're going to have to have his word saturating you inside until it dominates all of your thinking, until it dominates your behavior, until you think it and you talk it and you quote it, and when life cuts you, you bleed God's word. Listen, you cannot know Jesus more than you know his word. And so our primary call is to be with him, and the primary way that we do that is through his word. The fourth thing that we see, to follow him, we have to leave it all. To follow him, we have to leave it all. Immediately, it says, they left their boat and their father and they followed him. Why do you think Matthew used, you chose to highlight those two things? Because for them, it represented the two most important things in life. Their boat was their occupation. It was the way that they provided their father, in, in that culture, the father was the most important relationship. Everything centered around your relationship to the father. And so what Jesus is saying is, if you want to follow me, you, you have to, I have to take precedence over everything else in your life. Most of us in this room, to follow Jesus, will not actually have to give up our career or our family. To be certain, we have brothers and sisters around the world today who are worshiping, who for them, that is the reality that they have experienced uh, deep pain and, and deep loss, deep persecution. If you, if you want to read a book about this, um, I would highly re- recommend a book by the name of The Insanity of God. It's by a guy named Nick Ripkin. If you want to learn about our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church, I read this book a number of months ago, and it had a deep impact on me. But one of the things that um, this guy Nick came into contact with as he was talking with these leaders in, in the persecuted church was that um, they were praying for us because though, our, we, though we don't face the type of persecution that they do, not even close, the challenges that we face are in some ways uh, more sneaky and, and more sinister because the challenges we face are woven into uh, the culture that we live in that says it's all about me, it's all about my comfort, it's all about uh, my family, it's all about making much of my life. There's no possibility for that when, when you're a, a Chinese Christian in an underground church. And so the reality is we won't maybe face that type of persecution, but what every single one of us will face at one point or another in our life is that we are going to be faced with situations where we have to decide who holds greater sway in my life. For you youth, junior high and high school students, there may come a time where, and maybe some of you have experienced this already, where you will be the only 
uh, student in your group of friends who chooses to live your life for Jesus. And, and there will be this moment where you have to decide who holds greater sway. Is it the opinion of your friends or is it Jesus in your life? For those in business, there will come a time where you will be tempted to kind of skirt the edges because everyone else in the industry does. And you'll have to decide who holds greater sway in your life. For many of us, it will be how, how do we choose to use our, our income, our time, all of the other resources that God has given us. It is so countercultural to think about using those for anyone else but us, our own pleasure, our own benefit, or for those we love. And in those moments, we have to continually decide who holds greater sway in my life. Is it my pursuit of, of pleasure and pursuit of these things, or is it Jesus and what he has called me to do? So to follow him, we have to leave it all. And finally, number five, he commands us to reproduce spiritually. He commands us to reproduce spiritually. We see that to be his disciple, he commands us to do this. Verse 19, he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Just like Jesus, our great example, was a fisher of men, his disciples would be fishers of men. This is the essential part of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's not something that is just saved for for a select few of maybe super Christians. This is the mandate for every man and woman who calls himself a disciple of Jesus Christ. The analogy is that if you have a fruit tree in your backyard, that's a beautiful tree that has wonderful leaves, it looks very healthy, but it never produces fruit. It's an unhealthy tree. And, and so if we call ourselves disciples of Jesus Christ and, and there, is, uh, there is not a, a disciple-making effort in our lives, then we have at least reason to question, have I, fully, have I fully given my life over to Jesus as his disciple? Because it's his mandate. Robert Coleman, uh, he wrote this little book called The Master Plan of Discipleship. It's a book I read in, in college that had a big impact on me. And he said in his book, When will the church learn this lesson? Preaching to the masses, although necessary, will never suffice in the work of preparing leaders for evangelism. Nor can occasional prayer meetings and training classes for Christian workers do the job. Individual women and men are God's method. God's plan for discipleship is not something, but someone. So here's my question as we close our time this morning Are you a disciple? Not a Christian, maybe in the way that the broader culture would describe, but a disciple in the way that Jesus describes. I mean, do we understand who it is who has called us? Talk about authority. He didn't just give new insight. He spoke to the wind and the waves, and they obeyed him. He commanded demons, and they fled from him. He spoke to diseases, and they were healed. He talked to a man in a grave, and that man walked out. By him, all things exist. By his blood, they were redeemed. For his glory, they were created. And according to his purpose, they are progressing. He has no rival. He has no equal. If Jesus is who he says he is, then he deserves more than casual association and church attendance. He deserves total abandonment and complete and utter adoration. The gospel is that you and I could never do anything to make ourselves right with God, that we were utterly lost, and that God, in his grace, sent Jesus to reach down 
to us who were dead in our trespasses, face down, no breath going through our lungs, no blood pumping through our heart. He lived a life that we should have lived, and then he died the death that you and I were condemned to die in our place. And on the cross, when Jesus hung there, the wrath against sin was poured out on the Son, and the Father crushed the Son on our behalf. He became that sacrifice for our sin. And he says to every man, woman, and child that that is a gift he would give freely to us, that he would take our sin and we would get Jesus' righteousness so that when the Father looks at us, he doesn't see the, the sins that we've committed He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he would give that to us freely if we would give ourselves to him, place our trust in what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for our sins and become his disciple. But that means giving him everything. That means complete and total surrender. Scholars point to three phases of Jesus' ministry when he walked on this earth. The first phase they call come and see. Jesus gathered huge crowds and people were, were, were interested. Who is this rabbi with this authority who preaches these incredible messages, who heals people, who, um, who, who does all of these amazing things and these giant crowds would gather. But then partway through his ministry, Jesus did something radical. He changed from come and see to come and die. And what happened? The crowds left. He said, to follow me, I require everything. And then before Jesus ascended, his final words to his disciples were, go and tell. Some of you were at the two coffee house chats this last week, and at them I I shared a little bit of what I feel was my call into ministry. And the central piece of, of my call into ministry was God just showing me in a profound radical way that our God is not a come and see God. He didn't require sinful men and women to somehow make a religious movement towards him. He reached down and he saved us. And if we're going to be his disciples, if we're going to have the dust of our rabbi all over us, we follow in his footsteps. That we don't simply say, come and see. We say, I'll take up my cross daily. I'll die daily and I will follow him. And then we do what he commands us to do, to go and tell. That's why we're here. It has been, to say the least, a challenging year. You know that far better than I do. But the mission has not changed. God calls us to see his glory spread to every nook and cranny, to every household, to every school, to every business, to every broken home in the city of La Habra where we believe he has planted us. And I think the journey is going to continue to have bumps along the road. But thank God we don't have to trust in our own ability to do this. We place our trust in what God will do through us. God is going to be faithful. What he has started, he is not going to let drop. He's going to see it through. And that's my heart and my prayer, that we would be a group of men and women here who are so sold out for Jesus, who who have so internalized the reality of what Jesus has done for us that we cannot help but giving everything 
to share the greatest news that the world has ever heard to people who have not yet given their lives to Jesus. I'll invite the worship team to come forward. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we are so blown away at your love for us. Forgive us, Father, uh, for those times where we do take that for granted, that where we follow you half-heartedly, where we do not give you everything. And yet we thank you that your love for us is not dependent upon how well, we, how well we do, Lord, that you love us unconditionally. Lord, may that love drive us to do what you've called us to do. May that love allow us to, to heal in significant and profound ways. Lord, would you make us into a family that you want, a family that is on a mission to see men and women give their lives to Jesus Christ. Lord, would you empower us for this mission. We know that we cannot do it on our own and we'd just mess it up if we tried. So God, we, we give uh, our future to you. We place our hope in you. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.